0: Would you take your Bibles and stand with me and take up your Bible with a thankful heart for one of the greatest gifts we could ever be given is the Word of God printed and published in our own heart language. Turn with me to Romans 15, 1 through 6. Romans 15, 1 through 6. Page 1128 in the Bible in front of you, if you need a pew Bible. And let us listen, for as the Bible is read, God is speaking. Romans 15, one through 6. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to you having sung together, and we pray, Lord, that our harmony and unity in praise and in listening to your word and in hearing your word preached will be pleasing to you. And yet, Lord, we are not perfect as a church or as individuals. We need to grow in our unity. We need to grow in our harmony. And we pray, Lord, that your word preached through our pastor would unite our hearts to grow closer to you and to one another. Lord, may we not let anything that is minor and secondary and personal preference and opinion drive a wedge between our hearts and disrupt our unity that we have in Christ Jesus. We pray this, Lord, because by Him and through Him, it can become a reality. And all God's people said, Amen.
1: Well, I have some good news. And yes, I have some bad news this morning. The good news is everyone who has received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is going to heaven. We celebrate that good news. The bad news is we're traveling there together. It's easy to get out of sorts with the people around us, isn't it? The story is told of a little boy sitting on the front steps with his face cradled in his hands. He's looking very upset. His father comes out and sees him and asks him what was wrong. And his sad son looked up and said to his father, Well, just between us, Dad, I'm having trouble getting along with that wife of yours. Well, just between us here this morning, Christians sometimes have trouble getting along with each other here in the church. So far in this series of Code of Conduct here in Romans 14 and 15, we have learned that disunity in the church is nothing new. In fact, most of it is actually caused when Christians disagree over what Paul calls these opinions or these disputable matters, that is, these gray areas, these issues uh, that are non-essential. In the church at Rome, in which Paul's directly writing to, the disagreement among these Christ followers was over uh, special diets and special days, whether it was okay uh, in that day and age, in Paul's day, to eat meat, That was previously offered to idols. Whether or not to keep the the kosher laws of the Old Testament. Whether or not to drink wine. Or whether or not to observe the Sabbath or other holy days. And and this was causing contention within the church of Rome. And so the stronger believers, and that's what Paul alludes to them. They were criticizing the weaker believers. Because they they were still hanging on to their past. And they hadn't yet grown to the point of, of fully exercising their liberty in Christ. And the weaker believers, as you might imagine, were they were condemning the stronger believers as unspiritual, even worldly, because they were exercising their liberty in Christ in these non-essential issues. And as you might imagine, this judgmental attitude on both sides was causing quite a stir within. The church at Rome reminds me of another story about a little girl who was forced to eat alone at a small table in the kitchen as part of her discipline for disobeying. And as her parents tried to ignore her, they heard her pray out to God, out loud, I thank you, Lord, for preparing a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And unfortunately, that's how we can kind of view one another, even in the family of God. And specifically, view people who disagree with us on these issues. We view them as our enemies. But Paul says, no, no, they're not our enemies. We're actually brothers and sisters in Christ. So then, how do we get along when we disagree over such trivial issues? Well, in the first message, we learn that we are to welcome one another you disagree with. And we're to do so, Paul says, without passing judgment on someone else's personal convictions in these disputable matters. Why? Because Paul says, listen, God has accepted you and that person. And so we should accept them. Plus, Paul tells us that God is our judge and there's going to be a day where each of us will stand before God Almighty and we will give an account of our own lives. And then last Sunday we learned that that love is always better than liberty. The issue is not whether we actually possess liberty in Christ. Listen, as a Christ follower, you have liberty in Jesus Christ. Amen? We should celebrate that. But rather, the issue is, how should we exercise our liberty in Christ? And Paul tells us, we saw this last Sunday, he says, listen, do not let, don't let your liberty destroy your brother or sister in Christ. Don't let your liberty in Christ, how you exercise it, even destroy your testimony for Christ. And most of all, don't let your liberty in Christ destroy the church, the church at large. Instead, Paul says, listen, let your love for Christ and even your love for your fellow Christians here choose to limit your liberty. Now, as we move from uh, Romans chapter 14 here and we move into Romans 15, Paul's still talking on the same theme. The two chapters are connected here, but what it's interesting to note is what Paul doesn't say. ...in these two chapters. Uh, You may have noticed that he never says... ...prove the other person wrong. When you read through Romans 14 and 15... ...and you see this for yourself... ...the strong are never told to convince the weak... ...that their conscience and convictions are wrong. Now that's a rather fascinating insight... ...because by definition... It's always better to be strong or weak. Well, we know that. Our culture says it's better to be what? Strong. Yeah, who wants to be weak? I mean, we're, and we're, in fact, let's be honest, we're even taken back that Paul would even use the word weak to, to categorize another believer. But that, in our, our thinking and our culture, that's a taboo, even. Weak, strong, everybody wants to be strong. And yet, Paul. He doesn't make that sort of argument here in Romans 14 and 50. Nowhere does Paul tell the strong to actually convert the weak. He doesn't even say, hey, teach them patiently. Teach them graciously. And nowhere does Paul tell the weak to just get with the program, to grow up, to to change their convictions over these non-essential issues. Instead, Paul says something like this. Let the strong be strong, let the weak be weak, and above all, let both the strong and the weak get along together in peace and worship together in unity. Now, any logical person here right now is thinking, well, how in the world is that possible? I mean, all you got to do is look at your own family, right? Right? I mean, even if you don't have any kids and it's just you and your spouse, that's a, that alone right there is enough to figure that out. How is this possible? And Paul says, listen, it's possible when we live for the good of others and ultimately for the glory of God. Paul says that's when it's possible. This is what Paul calls us to in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you are a Christ follower here this morning, if you claim to have believed the gospel and Christ has transformed your life, you've been born again, this is our calling, by the way. This is what Paul is calling us to. This is the key to keeping unity in the gospel. We are called to live for the good of others and the glory of God. In fact, Paul exhorts us right here in verse 2 of chapter 15. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And then Paul prays this wonderful prayer in verses 5 and 6 where he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice. In other words, in harmony, in unity, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, this is the key to keeping unity in the gospel. Living for the good of others in the glory of God. And so what we see here now in these six verses is a principle, a pattern, and then a provision. A principle, a pattern, and a provision. In other words, Paul lays out this principle for us. He's going to give us a principle which we apply in our lives. He then gives us a pattern to follow. And then he says, I know you can't do this on your own, so let me give you a provision here that you have, which makes all of this possible. So let's unpack it. Let's look at it. Number one, the principle. Don't live to please yourself. That's the principle. Don't live to please yourself. Now, Why is that? Well, Paul knows something that maybe we haven't ever thought about before, and that is unity is impossible if everyone seeks to please himself or herself. So Paul tells us in verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And so, again, it's important for us to understand the distinction that Paul's making between The strong, which is a category that Paul actually places himself in, and the weak. These believers, listen, they're all believers, the strong and the weak. And they're not strong or weak physically, even mentally or emotionally. Rather, their strength or weakness is specifically related to their conscience regarding these disputable matters. God has already clearly said in Scripture that, hey, some things are always, always, always right for everyone. So we're not disputing that. We also know that in Scripture, some things are always, 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 always wrong for everyone. We're not disputing that as well. But regarding many other things that God hasn't addressed, God hasn't said... That is, Scripture is either silent about it or it's non-conclusive. That's the disputable matters in which your conscience may be either strong or, or weak. This is important because every church, by the way, includes a mixture of both strong and weak. The strong Christian is one who has lots of freedom of conscience when it comes to these disputable matters. The weak Christian, on the other hand, has very little freedom of conscience when it comes to these matters. Therefore, this person tends to have a more restrictive view of their liberty in Christ. Now, between the strong and the weak, all right, between these two groups, who does Paul address in verse 1? Well, he addresses the strong. Notice it. The call not to please ourselves is directed to the strong. That is, those who have a broader, fuller biblical understanding of their liberty in Christ. Now, this, of course, does not mean that the weak are exempt from responsibility of welcoming the strong. Since verse 7 indicates that both the strong and the weak are to welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you. Nevertheless, Paul is saying here, in verse 1 specifically, that the greater burden of responsibility is on whom? The strong. You see, in our culture, it's just assumed, and everybody tends to embrace it, that the strong get to do whatever they want. Why? Because you're strong. It's kind of the survival of the fittest mentality. The strong get to do whatever they want. They can get away with whatever they want. Why? You're strong. They got the resources. They got the connections. They got whatever. The strong get to do whatever they want in our culture. And God says, that may be in the culture. Or that may be true there. But not in my household. Not in my family. Not in my church, God says. You see, in God's household, strength denotes obligation. And responsibility. And an unwillingness to limit our liberty for the sake of others indicates, in other words, if we are not willing to step back and limit our liberty for the sake of others. That is an indication that perhaps we are not as strong as we maybe think we are. So what does it mean then? Not to please ourselves. Well, Paul actually tells us in the rest of verses 1 and 2. He begins to define this for us. He lays it out. And so instead of pleasing yourself, he says, first of all, seek to bear with the weak. That's the first part of what it means. Instead of pleasing yourself, seek to bear with the weak. You see, in our culture, in the world, the strong eat the weak for breakfast. But Paul says that in the church, the strong ought to bear with the weak. Now, this phrase that Paul uses, to bear with, uh, it re- actually refers to picking up and carrying a burden as if it was your own burden. Uh, it's, it's, it means to do something hard and even costly for the sake of another person. And the same phrase, the same verb, is used in Galatians chapter two, uh, 6, verse 2, when Paul urges believers to bear one another's burdens. In other words, we're to come alongside of another believer and we're to pick up their burden and actually bear it, carry it. All right? Uh, the same verb is also used in the Gospels to refer to Jesus Christ himself in relation to when he was carrying his cross on the road to Jerusalem. Why? He's bearing with the burden of the cross. All right? So you get the picture, the mental image of bear with here. Therefore, to bear with the weak means to help carry or to help support their failings or their weaknesses in these disputable matters. This doesn't mean, though, that the strong have to agree with the position of the weak. We know that. Paul doesn't even agree with their position when it came to the special diets and special days. Nor does it mean that the strong can never exercise their liberty in Christ. Paul's not saying that either. On the other hand, neither does it mean that the strong only put up with or quote tolerate the weak like a person who tolerates someone who's annoying. We all know that, right? You got a coworker. worker a Somebody at school, a brother, sister, uh, and you kind of, man, I got to bear, I got to tolerate that person at the job now. He's so annoying. No, for a Christian to bear with the weaknesses of the weak means that you gladly help the weak by refraining from doing anything that would hurt their faith. The idea is that of showing Loving consideration for a weaker believer in the faith. Stronger believers, therefore, what they choose, they choose, they limit their liberty in Christ out of love for the weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. So bearing with the weak is really all about what we learned last Sunday. Paul used this little phrase last Sunday. It's all about walking in what? Love. That's the essence of it. Bearing with the weak is the idea. Yes, bearing with the weak is not always easy. In fact, it is oftentimes costly. Uh, For example, you don't bear with your favorite sports team when they're competing for a championship every year. You don't bear with that. You enjoy that, right? I mean, just asking a KU basketball fan. Right, Alan? Yes, amen. All right, good job, Alan. But when your favorite team is last in the division or just mediocre, enough to get your hopes up year after year, only to crush those hopes by mid-season, well, that requires a lot of bearing with. Just ask any K-State or Mizzou fan. Oh, yeah. By the way, that's why KU basketball fans are KU basketball fans and not football fans. In those seasons of forbearance, you may be wondering, do I really have to bear with the weak? Because I don't want to. Well, Paul answers this question in verse 1 when he says, We who are strong have a what? An obligation here to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And that word obligation, it means owing a debt. It means being a debtor under obligation. And so Paul doesn't think we have a choice in the matter. It is a responsibility. It is an obligation on behalf of the strong here to bear with the weak. Paul says we owe this kind of love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. I love what Ray Stedman writes in regard to the stronger believer bearing with the weaker believer without forcing your opinions or changes upon them, that they're not ready to assimilate or embrace. He he writes the following. He he says, we can compare this to crossing a, a swinging bridge over a mountain river. Some people can just run across that bridge like that, even though it is swinging in the wind. I mean, they just zip across it. No big deal. They are not concerned about the swaying of the bridge or the danger of falling into the torrent below. But others are very uncertain on such a bridge. They shake, they tremble, they inch along. They may even get down on their hands and knees to crawl across the bridge. Bear with them. It is like that with these moral questions of disputable matters. It would be cruel for someone who had the freedom to cross boldly to take the arm of someone who was timid and force him or her to run across. He might even lose his balance and fall off the bridge. That's the idea here that Paul's getting at with bear with. And it's the obligation of the strong to do this with the weak. In other words, if we are strong Or if we're going to live for the good of others, we must bear with the weak. Number two, Paul says, seek to build up your neighbor. We see this in verse two where he says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. In Paul's use of this phrase, each of us, well, that just cuts to the chase because that leaves no room for exceptions. Each of us has a responsibility in this one. Each of us has a responsibility to please his neighbor. And Paul is very intentional in using the word neighbor here. What's he getting at? Well, he's reverting back to what he's already talked about, beginning in Romans 12 and in 13, and again in Romans 14. He's continuing the line of thought, in other words. Paul reveals, this word neighbor reveals, that Paul still has the love command, which originated in the Old Testament in Leviticus 19, and Paul repeats it in Romans 13, 8. He has that in mind as the basis for his code of conduct in the church. And what does that command say, the love command? Love your what as yourself? Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Paul expects each of us to walk in love toward our Christian brother or sister. Pleasing your neighbor. Now that sounds great if you're on the receiving end of it, right? But not so much if you're the one doing the pleasing. So what does that even mean? Well, it does not mean pampering them or pacifying them. Rather, it means working, and this is the key for their Good. And then Paul explains what that means even. To build them up, spiritually. Building up is the opposite of tearing down. Uh, Paul alludes to this in Philippians 2, 4, where he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, sometimes we hear exhortations like this and think that we are to please our neighbor at any and all costs. That it means we need to sacrifice our opinions and positions and simply adopt theirs as ours. But that's not what Paul means here. Nor does he mean avoiding or even watering down the truth because that truth might offend them. Pleasing your neighbor does not mean telling him or her that he or she's right when you know they are not right according to Scripture. Rather, here's the idea, it's holding on to your conscience, your conviction, in this disputable matter, that yes, that person is wrong, but caring more about loving him than, quote, fixing him. Remember, there are, these are disputable matters. And there are many disputable matters in the Christian life that actually maybe matter to some Christians, but they are not essential to the gospel. And those who are stronger in the faith must realize that it is more important to welcome others in their weaknesses than to fix people of their weaknesses. You see, we are called to bear with. We're called to even build up for their good, not always to correct them or to fix them. Now, someone here, perhaps maybe more than one, perhaps many of you may object, and your thinking might be like this. Loving them involves helping them to see that they are wrong. Or it's unloving to let someone live with an incomplete understanding of their liberty in Christ. Perhaps, but love will always mean much, 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 much more than that. Listen, love may include telling the truth about one's liberty in Christ at some point in time, having that discussion. But it cannot be solely reduced to that. Listen, neighbor love, and that's what we call this here, loving your neighbor as yourself. This is neighbor love, will not only include what I say, but also how I say it, when I say it, whether I'm even the right person to say it to that specific person, and most of all, grace to please my Christian brother or sister for their good. Now, at this point, maybe some of you are a little uncomfortable with the idea of, quote, pleasing your neighbor because you know that Paul, elsewhere in the Scriptures, has warned us about being a people pleaser. And that is true. He has. So how do we resolve this tension? Because right here in Romans 15, Paul's telling us, please your neighbor, not yourself. Or we might phrase it this way. We need to... Uh, please others above ourselves. And yet elsewhere in Scripture, specifically in places like Galatians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 2.4, Paul warns us against being people pleasers. Well, understand, Paul's not saying that we should become a people pleaser who cares more about what others think than about what God thinks. You see, the choice is not Between pleasing people and pleasing God. And that's how so many people want to frame it. And that's not the choice. The choice is between pleasing others and yourself. I like to phrase it better. Pleasing others above yourself. After all, unity is impossible if everyone in this room is seeking to please himself or herself. It would It's impossible. If we're all seeking to please ourselves. In fact, pleasing ourselves, first and foremost, Paul's warning us here, actually destroys peace and harmony within the family of God. It will also destroy that in your own family, your physical family. So Christian liberty is not, I do what I want, nor is it, I do whatever the other person wants. Rather, it is... I do what brings good to others and glory to God. That's the principle Paul sets before us to apply. Don't live to please yourself. Now he gives us a pattern. And the pattern is this. Follow the unselfish example of Christ. Follow the unselfish example of Christ. This is the basis of not living to please yourself. Because Christ did not live to please himself. So follow his unselfish example, Paul says. Notice what he writes in verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now just think how different life would be if Jesus had lived on this earth to please himself. He certainly wouldn't have endured every manner of insults and rejection on his way to the cross with his horrible suffering and bearing of our sin. But Jesus did it out of love. Love for you and me, and ultimately, he did it for the glory of God. Now, to support this claim of Paul's, we that we must please others above ourselves, Paul does not refer to any specific incident in the life of Christ. Rather, he simply quotes an Old Testament passage in Psalm chapter 69, verse 9. And in that specific psalm, King David is pictured as taking the abuse of the people because he stood up for God. This psalm, by the way, Uh, This specific part of the psalm is quoted all throughout the New Testament. Many places it's cited or alluded to. And it's always in reference to Christ. And now Paul applies this psalm to Jesus Christ in that our insults and our sins against God Almighty were placed on Christ on the cross. Here's Paul's point with it all. Christ didn't think of his rights when he went to the cross. Just read Philippians chapter 2. Man, he sacrificed all that for us. Christ thought only of our salvation needs when he died for us. So in Christ, what we have here, what Paul is setting up for us as a pattern to follow, we have this example, but we also have more than that as an example. We actually have the extent to which we are to please others above ourselves. It is selfless. It absorbs others' wrongs and weaknesses. It is for others' good in God's glory. So here's the application. And let me phrase it in a question. If Jesus gave up the glory of heaven in his own life for your salvation, then shouldn't we then, as Christ's followers, be willing to give up our liberties in these disputable, trivial issues for the good of our neighbor when love requires it. That's the application. As one commentator writes, if Jesus could endure the insults of others, we should certainly be willing to put up with the minor irritations from Christians with different viewpoints on such issues. You see, in light of what Jesus was willing to bear for us, shouldn't you be willing to give up your liberties to help your weaker brother or sister in Christ? Isn't it worth denying your preferences to help others grow in their walk with Christ? Think of it this way. Compared compared with what Christ suffered on the cross, to give up a liberty like eating meat in Paul's day is trivial indeed. And so if you're a believer here today, you are likely a stronger brother or sister in some area. And so here's the question. Would you be willing to pray this week that the Holy Spirit would show you how much you live to please yourself? By the way, FYI, we all struggle to live to please ourselves. Have you found that to be true? You us know, let's, let's admit it, we're, we're all sinful and selfish by nature. And so our default mode is always to live to please me first. Let's get it out on, let's just, that's who we are by our natures. That's our default mode. And so Paul is countering that. And would you also pray that God would give you the power then to genuinely live to please the people he's put you around, to put their interests before your own for their spiritual good. And so we have a principle and we have a pattern. And the principle is don't live to please yourself, but the pattern is follow the unselfish example of Christ. And now we have the provision. We have hope to live in harmony with one another. Now, why does Paul focus on hope here? Because we will never live this out. We will never apply the principle. And will never follow the pattern to live in such harmony with one another without some kind of hope. Paul knows that we need hope to do this. To live as self-denying servants of love who follow the unselfish example of Christ. And that's exactly what God gives us here. He gives us hope that this is possible. You're like, I'm not sure I believe you, Bruce. All right, then look at it with me. Look in verses 4 through 6, because here it is. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have, what's it say? Hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live In such harmony with one another. What kind of harmony? What he's been talking about since Romans chapter 14 up until now. In accord with Jesus Christ. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how does God provide us the hope of endurance and encouragement to live in such harmony that he's been talking about? Well, he does it by two means. He does it through the scriptures... And he does it through the Spirit. Through the Scriptures and the Spirit. You got it? He does it, you get hope, encouragement, and endurance to live in such harmony through the power of the Scriptures and the power of the Spirit. Look at it with me. First, we have the instruction of the Scriptures for our endurance and encouragement. Now, verse 4 may seem like this bit of a detour that Paul's taking here. That he's just kind of rambling. But it's not. This is very intentional. Paul is reminding us how essential the scriptures are for our endurance and encouragement in living as self-denying servants of love. Now, I know that's a little bit foreign to our thinking. But here's the question. Have you ever wondered why we have the Old Testament scriptures in our hands? And by the way, scriptures here, what the things were written in former... When Paul says it in former days, it's allusion, it's reference to the Old Testament Scriptures. So why do we have the Old Testament Scriptures? Well, they were written, Paul says, for our instruction. But with a purpose that through endurance and encouragement of those Scriptures, the instruction of those Scriptures, you might have hope. It's been well said that the greatest commentary for understanding the New Testament is actually a very thorough grasp of the Old Testament. This means if you really want to understand God's Word, we must not neglect the Old Testament. Why? Paul is telling us here that it will feed us, it will nurture us, it will actually give us wisdom for life, wisdom on how to get along with one another, and instruction as well, hope as well. Paul says the Old Testament gives us endurance and encouragement. How so, man? Let me you just—you read through the Old Testament and you will find the example of faithful saints, along with the faithfulness of God where He gives endurance and encouragement to them. Reading the stories of faithful men and women who persevered through trial after trial and testing after tasting, man, it should motivate us. If they could do it through God's power, then I can do it. This is not beyond the realm of possibility here. What God did for them, He can do for me with my family member, with my brother or sister in Christ, not to please ourselves. Someone said endurance is simply holy hanging in there. Do you need a little bit of holy hanging in there? Well, we all need a little holy hanging in there when we are seeking to please others above ourselves. And in the Old Testament, we are reminded repeatedly of God's faithfulness to His people and His faithfulness to His plan of redemption for His people through Christ. This too reminds us that we have an unshakable future and hope. And so one of the things that the Scriptures will do, yes, both the old and the new, is it will build up faith. This is the reason that Paul associates all of this with hope. Because when your faith increases, your hope increases. One of the things here... Reading the Scriptures, it awakens and sustains our hope to live in such harmony with one another. And so if you are serious, I mean serious, you want to take God's Word serious here, if you're serious in living for the good of others and the glory of God, then you need to make the most of the Scriptures in your life. It will give you endurance and encouragement. But second, we also have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the Scriptures, but we have the Spirit for our endurance and encouragement and so what happens now in verses five and six paul shifts from teaching about the scriptures to praying for the church at rome look at it again we've read it twice let's read it again in verses five and six it says may the god of endurance now that's interesting because in verse four what did paul allude to the scriptures give us Encouragement and endurance. And now Paul shifts the phrase and he says, the God of encouragement and endurance. In other words, what Paul's doing is, when the scriptures speak, it's God speaking. They're one in the same. And now God, Paul says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul informs us now that the endurance and encouragement not only come through the scriptures, but they are ultimately, listen to this, it's the gift of God through the indwelling spirit that we have as Christ followers. Again, endurance and encouragement are necessary to live for the good of others. I promise you, listen, without these gifts, we will default to living for ourselves. And so Paul wishes here that all his readers, the church at Rome and also the church here at LifeBridge... Both the strong and the weak would appropriate these gifts and apply them in their interpersonal relationships in the church. In fact, so much so that Paul later on, he wraps this all up in verse 13 with another prayer where he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The result of this prayer, would be hope to live in unity in harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. But notice how unity, and we'll look at this in detail next Sunday, but unity in and of itself is not the ultimate goal. You've got to understand that. Listen, we don't, we're not doing all this just so we can say, oh, we have a church of unity and be proud of that. That is not the ultimate goal here. That is a byproduct. That is a result. Of what Paul's talking about. Of walking in love towards one another. That's the result of all of this. But it's not the goal. The goal here is revealed in verse 6. That Paul prays for unity so that together you may do what? In other words, so that as a church family here at Lifebridge, the byproduct of of our unity is for the express purpose that we may with one voice glorify our God Father. That's the purpose. That's the goal. And when this occurs in the church, it is actually evidence then of unity in the gospel among both the strong and the weak. This means that the ultimate goal of glorifying God makes our living for the good of others worthwhile. Living in such harmony with one another is a matter of great importance in God's eyes. God puts a premium on it, and if He does, then we should focus less on disputable matters and focus more on what matters to Him. So in the end, don't live to please yourself. But follow the unselfish example of Christ, knowing that we have the hope of endurance in encouragement to live in such harmony with one another. Because when it's all said and done, folks, listen to me, our liberty in Christ, if you haven't figured it out by now, it isn't about me. My liberty in Christ is not about me. It's about living for the good of others in the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the liberty we have in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us the grace to not live to please ourselves, but to follow the unselfish example of Christ. May love be evident among us. As a God of hope, may you give us the endurance and encouragement to live for the good of others in your glory.